0: All right, guys, let's go ahead and get started this morning. You guys are uh, impressive because I totally forgot to send you an email reminding you, and yet here you are. So, that's impressive. Yeah. Wow, you guys are good. You're very good. Um, we have two meetings left. This one and the next. And uh, they both are going to focus on um, how to study the Bible or interpretation issues. Um, And it's just going to be an introduction to some of the basics of it. Um, What we're going to look at today and and next time together is, um, is built upon in a very, very big way in H3 with Smed, Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. I'm I'm hoping that next time we're together, that um, Smed can actually come in and talk to you a little bit about H3. Um, I need to arrange that with him, I think he can, but uh, just so you can get a little feel from him about what H3 is all about And uh, where it fits in the big scheme of what we want to do with men in the church. So um, that will be really good. I think you'll enjoy that. Um, Let's turn your notebooks over, though. And let's not um, miss the opportunity to remind ourselves again. And hopefully, you don't even really have to look at it anymore. But if you turn your notebook over, we we talk about, again, what Build is really all about Um, the fountain of everything is um, you shepherding your heart to the word of God to meet with the God of the word. Um, that kind of man who wants to get near to God in his word in order to know that God, to, to better love that God, to better serve that God, to better worship that God, that, God, that man is a man who when he opens his mouth... Others in the body and opens his Bible before others in the body, that one, um, that man is an uncommon man. Because that man has met with his Savior and has drawn near to his Savior in the place where God has most clearly revealed himself, which is the Word of God. Remember, Scripture is primarily, first and most, revelation of God. Um, and, and it's really good for us to come back to you know, referring to Scripture as Revelation. Um, not the book of Revelation, only, merely, um, in the New Testament. But it is Revelation. It is the revealing of a being. God. God Almighty. God the Creator. God the Redeemer. And when we come to this book, we want to come to it to, to see him as he has exposed himself. There's no greater place anywhere that he has done that. And if in your mind you think, well, duh, of course that's what we do every time we come. No, it isn't. You can very easily come to this book and read it and study it and miss God. And come to it for other reasons, right? Other purposes. Um, With an agenda in mind. Um, Because you have to. Because somebody's going to ask you. Because uh, you need to win an argument at work tomorrow um, for a host of reasons. And history is full, and and biblical history, scriptural history is full of of men who were near to God's word but who were not near to God. Uh, You might want to read about the Pharisees and others, priests and, and whatnot in the Old Testament. Um, These words are very important because these words are a means to a glorious end who is God. And uh, shepherd your heart to come to him in his word. When you do that then, you are ready to step into your household (coughs) discipline number two, your household relationships, and bring everything that you've been filling your heart with concerning God in his word. That needs to spill out on everybody you live with there first, right? you need to come uh, and and give off a gospel aroma of sorts to the people who you live with and who live with you. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're a single guy living on your own with some other guys in the house who are not your wife or your kids or your brother or parents, but make an impact on those people. If you live alone, have people into your home. So you can care for them, so you can shepherd them, so you can let them step into and under the umbrella of, of your love for God and His Word, and they can be blessed by that. Uh, because when, someday, God does bring to you a wife and perhaps children and all of that good stuff, it won't be a massive adjustment, because that's what you have already been with others in your household. Um, once you have done that and not leapfrog over your house uh, to get to other people. Uh, then you're ready to think about your ministry, this from three, with others um, in the church. And this is where guys make their, the, the fatal error, right? Leapfrog over my heart, leapfrog over people that I live with uh, to serve in the church. Oh, I'd love to, yeah, you need somebody to lead a Bible study. I'd love to do that. I, I, I'm fascinated with studying and teaching and want to do that, want to do that, I see a need for that in the body, thank you for giving giving me that opportunity. Church leadership is usually completely desperate for men to do that. And so an eager man is immediately assumed to be a qualified man by leadership. (laughs) And so leadership grabs a hold of him and says, isn't he the best thing since sliced bread? Go do it. Without thinking about what kind of a man is he with his own heart before God in the Word, and what is he doing with his relationships at home? Oh, that comes out later when there has been an absolute you know, turnover on the freeway of his life with his family. And then the people that he's been shepherding need to be shepherded now by you because of what happened in his life, because of the moral wreck that it was or became. Um, so don't play leapfrog over these things. But I'll tell you, if if in a church there's a man who has been shepherding his heart and he's been shepherding his household relationships and the elders here, see that there's a need in the body and there's that kind of a man. Oh my goodness, the elders. That's the man you want spending time with other sheep in the body, caring for them, loving them, building them up, admonishing them. That's the man you want. Um, So that's what we're really aiming for here with Bill. Fourth discipline are the qualifications Uh, we try to point you to. Primarily, we're pointing you towards deacon qualifications in build, but also elder qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1 for elders as well. Um, And if you look at those um, qualifications, what do they all pretty much summarize? Either discipline 1, 2, or 3. What kind of a man is he in his character, in his heart? Uh, What are his household relationships like? Um, He... Does he know how to manage his own household well? Is he a one-woman man? Those kinds of things. Uh, is he um, a fighter? Does he like to get into fights about things, that even this fight? Um, can you imagine that? Paul having to tell church, look, the guy who decks the guy he disagrees with is probably not qualified. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Um... So anyway, (laughs) Discipline 5 then is is pointing you towards just kind of a catch-all category of biblical, theological, practical things, and we kind of reserve that for this last two, where the theological uh, subject we're going to focus on is hermeneutics and how to study the Bible, that kind of a thing. We'll talk more about that today. Uh, And the last one is uh, Discipline 6, on the vision and the purpose of the church. you are men who aren't attending just any church. You're, you're attending and serving and are members of this church. And so what this church's vision is and what this church's purpose is in the gospel needs to be carried forward by certain kind of men. And um, we want you to be able to pick that up and advance it. So that is that. That is what Build is all about. And we've been doing it for together here um, For nine months, (coughs) almost. Um, I think next year I'm going to lengthen it a month, put two more in. I think because there's more I want to cover. So you guys got the shorter year. But we'll see. Um, I uh, let's take a look at your quote. Everything is going to be about how you look at Scripture, how you interpret Scripture. Uh, It's not quite as devotional, perhaps. Uh, in terms of making us think really warm thoughts about the Lord, but it will provoke your thinking. So let's take uh, a look at your quote, and then we'll pray. Um, Bernard Ram, the guy who got this from, he's written a classic book called Protestant Interpretation. Um, It's kind of the classic that everybody goes to when you're going to read about how to interpret Scripture. It is not an easy read. um, But I would say if you want to be really serious about Scripture, it's a must-read because in terms of studying scripture and you want to really press forward into hermeneutics and then get to exegetical kinds of things the the applying of hermeneutics, that's what exegesis is to texts, he's a must read you've got to read him and he says this, and he's very honest and I appreciate this it is very difficult for any person to approach the holy scriptures free from prejudices and assumptions which distort the text The danger of having a set theological system is that in the interpretation of Scripture, the system tends to govern the interpretation rather than the interpretation correcting the system. That is very insightful um, on a number of levels. Number one, there is nobody who is unbiased when they come to the text. Nobody. Nobody. And I'll tell you this, the author of Scripture is not unbiased. The author of Scripture is very biased. He has a massive bias, and his bias is towards himself. And he wrote from his bias, in his bias, to persuade you of his biasedness. And so when you come with your biases, he says... Lay aside your fallen biases and pick my bias up and know me. You've never written something objectively. You've never come to words objectively. True objectivity, what is that anyway? Like, What neutral place is there in the universe where you're neither influenced by evil and you're not influenced by God? Is that what we're supposed to have when we come to a text is that kind of objectivity, that objectivity is a fantasy. It does not exist. You are to come to Scripture with... uh, You will come to Scripture with bias. You just need to come to it with the right bias. And it's God's bias. And until He gives you His bias for Himself, you'll have trouble with this book. Does that make sense? I remember thinking... And being told and taught, when you study this, you need to come to it with objectivity. Well, that's kind of discouraging, because that does not exist. And God did not write it thinking, you know, this will be for the people who are able to come to it with objectivity. He wrote it for people who are biased with a bias that's going to send them to hell. But he's gracious, and by his spirit, he gives them his bias. So that when they read it, they can see his biased point, which is towards himself. Does that bother you? That's kind of a weird way to, you know, that can be foreign to us. Not weird. It's foreign to maybe what we're thinking. But I tell you what, I find that extremely comforting. To be biased with the bias of God towards himself. And that's, who could do that better than the Holy Spirit, who knows the mind of God, who searched it. And He comes and He indwells us, and He gives us the bias of God the Father, that God the Son went and accomplished everything for God the Father that He determined, so that God the Spirit could be in us with God's bias. Um, you and I, secondly, thing, second thing here to think about: everybody from reading their Bible begins to take truths, the theological propositions that come from text. Let's say Genesis is over here. We draw up theological propositions from it, and we read Exodus, and then we read, you know, we keep going through the Pentateuch, and we get all the way over here to Revelation, and we draw up these theological propositions that come up, hopefully, out of text, right? And we begin to gather all of those up, and we, we try to systematize them, because that's the way we think. So we classify them, God the Father is like this, God the Son is like this, God the Spirit is like this. We begin to collect them all and assemble them. And that is a good thing to do. Everyone who reads the Bible has some kind of a system. How intentionally they do that may vary from one person to the next. One person upon gathering and collecting all of their systems may say, yes, I have a system, I determined to have a system, and my system is called Reformed Theology or Covenant Theology or Dispensational Theology or this theology or that theology. They might intentionally do that. Others may not realize that's what they're doing, but they've collected systematic thoughts about what the scriptures mean. Now, the point is, is what he's saying here. The danger of having that set, theological system, is that when you come to the texts of Scripture, you got the wrong governor going on. If the system governs and has power and ultimate and final say over what texts say, that's a problem. Does your system inform your approach to Scripture? Absolutely, and it should. Okay. If a system of theology says God's word is not inerrant, when you come to the text, that's going to inform the way you interpret. If it says God's word is infallible, inerrant, that will inform the way you come. So, I mean, yeah, it, it does have bearing on it. But when you come to text, guys, this is so huge, and you may not be able to feel the how important this is right now, but if you can file this away someplace and not let go of it, okay? The most important thing you can do with your theology that you gain from the Bible and you, as you systematize it in your mind, who cares what it's called? Who cares what category it falls into? What camp you fall into for now? But if you can hold yourself to a principle that when you come to texts, the system gets checked, Okay, because then what will happen is texts will govern your system and if you tend to fall into a more kind of this kind of camp theologically if there's something in that camp that everybody has kind of collectively put in that camp if there's something in that camp that this text here contradicts Well, then you need to know that and be careful that when people lump you into that category or that camp, you go, yeah, for the most part I might be, but I take a real issue with this because I don't think that squares with text subscription. So this is why we need to be really careful with classifying ourselves first and most by camps theologically. Um, I can find a lot of things in, in a lot of different theological camps that I agree with, that I appreciate. Um, and I know it one I, I tend to fall into. Um, but there's not everything in that camp that I may necessarily <coughs> agree because I think texts need to say, speak on their own authority and for themselves.
1: Uh, I've heard statements like this several times and I get a little confused about statements about a text or contradicts, or something. Because it seems like what we're really talking about is an interpretation of a text, and an interpretation of a text depends on... Yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because a bunch of people can look at a text, even if they're trying not to come with their theology and make it about their theology. Right. A bunch of people can look at a text and not agree what it is right. it's right. saying about the theology. That,
0: absolutely. And that is exactly what today and next week are about in terms of um, you're going to see what the elders of this church believe is the the correct way to interpret scripture even that said there are certain texts that will come to that elders will not completely agree on what that text is saying so yeah look in a perfect ideal world yeah we would not even have to have to clarify what our hermeneutic is because we would all have the, the right hermeneutic um, but we're going to guide ourselves by the things that you're getting here placed before you today and, and um, let that interpretation of texts be what helps us then reinterpret and examine and reevaluate our systems of thought that we derive from text. Does that make sense? That's a good point to bring out. Absolutely. Okay? So, <coughs> be interested in theological camps you all fall into one or maybe a couple in terms of different places, but let your approach to Scripture override and reevaluate and reinterpret and purify those camps or that camp you're in, okay? With that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll we'll jump into some more of this together, okay? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning we... Um, have an opportunity to talk about Your Word, the revelation of God, of You. And we pray, Lord, that um, You would give us uh, the fullness of Your Spirit so that we might have Your glorious bias towards Yourself in Your Word. You wrote it not to reveal just anything or anyone. You wrote it to reveal You accurately. And so, God, we... As we um, equip ourselves to handle Your Word, so that we can rightly divide it, Lord, we we need You to come and help us and tell us what You um, meant when You wrote it through the human authors as well. And so, God, would You please even this morning guide our thinking, <clears throat> Father, what, for for the new things that may enter into some of the men's minds here that they've never thought of or heard of, or Seen, Lord, I pray that um, you would help them to grasp it, that it would not um, be disappointing or discouraging to them because they feel they don't understand or maybe they've never heard these things and they feel like maybe they should have. Lord, I, I just pray that this would be a, a great learning process together, um, that, Lord, the process of what we're doing here would actually improve our interaction personally, with the Word, first and foremost, Lord, so that as we do come to the Word to meet with you, we are not making words say something that they don't mean. Um, So God, please, meet with us this morning. Give us great fellowship together around your Word. And um, glorify your Son in our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. I want to do one other thing before we jump into the the stapled pages you have. I want you to take out the the, the other loose page that up um, the top of it. I think says from Justin Taylor. Is that right? Yeah. Um. This is, and again, remember you guys remember the rules, right? You just get up, uh, get whatever you need, make yourself at home. Um. I read this. Justin Taylor writes a. Uh, has a blog um, and I would say, in, from my opinion, it's the, it's the most worthwhile bro- blog to read. Um, and he has this, uh, he quotes David Mathis, a portion of David Mathis's review on a book by N.T. Wright, uh, N.T. Wright's book on justification. Um, N.T. Wright has written tons Some of which is very good, which your your heart would leap at because of the way he writes. Uh, There is a very significant portion of what he has written that is um, frightening. And so I don't know what to do with a guy who on, on one day, on one hour, when I read, I can just really like. And then on the next one, just be like, oh, my goodness, did he really just say that? Um, and unfortunately, it, it, some of it is on really key areas like justification, um, and so you need to really, really be careful with NT Wright if you read them. Okay. And my point is not, and giving you this quote is not to have you walk away going, "Oh, based on what this guy wrote in his review of NT Wright's book, I'm not going to read it." Um, I think there's probably something better you can read on justification than this. Um, my point is to draw attention to a few key phrases in here that I think are going to help you understand why it's so important to have um, good hermeneutics and good exegesis. Okay? Um, so let me let me read, walk through this with you a little bit, and we'll define a few terms, and if you want to, you can even write right on it so that you know. Um, so this is just again a portion of a review that Justin Taylor is quoting. Cons- from David Mathis who wrote. It. Exegesis, that first word. Um, exegesis is applying the rules of interpretation <coughs> to texts. It's just applying the rules of interpretation to texts. There is a collection of rules by which you fall, uh, that are there for you to interpret texts. Those rules for interpretation are called, is called that field, that's, that uh, that. Uh, discipline is called hermeneutics. When you take those rules and you apply them to a text, that's called exegesis. Exegesis is the application of hermeneutics to a text, okay? You understand? Exegesis, he says, has two different flavors for Wright and for Piper, and that's John Piper. So he's kind of comparing, because Piper's the other guy who's written... uh, significant work on, on justification. He's the guy to read. Um, Piper, now watch this. This is very important. Piper wrestles word by word, proposition by proposition, and then paragraph by paragraph. Right moves much quicker through large chunks of Paul's thought, refers frequently to whole chapters and paragraphs and quotes phrases often as technical terms, seemingly removed from their immediate context. It is surprising that Wright would remind us of, well, the text is the text. In other words, when you say that, well, the text is the text, what you're saying is, uh, how do you how can you argue with that? That's what the text says. He says it's surprising that Wright would remind us of that, that the text is the text, when he has dealt so little t- with the actual biblical text in its context. For this reason, Wright's exegetical chapters in his book are a serious disappointment, and this is it right here. Underline this. As his exegesis proves to be a kind of hovering above the text. That's what caught my eye when I read this. Rarely, if ever, landing. While supplying his own meaning for a phrase here and there that contributes to a coherent whole but neglects to explain the connections between Paul's propositions and paragraphs. Does Wright not see that the discussion cannot go forward if he will not convincingly engage Paul on Paul's own terms, but instead keeps the text at arm's length? Oh, listen, I happen to think that paragraph is too true in regards to, I think it's an accurate observation in regards to N.T. Wright, but let's just say for a minute, even if it's not true, the point here that I want you to get is any kind of an approach to scripture which hovers above the text, like in a helicopter, looking over it, claiming that, well, the text, then the text, and the text, and it, you're hovering above it, but you're not actually landing down in it, wrestling with word by word and phrase by phrase and how this phrase is connected with the next phrase. and. The, where you never land and actually engage with the author on the human author on the human author's own terms, that kind of approach to scripture that's happier to say, well, that's just not, look, that's not Paul's theology. Well, how do you respond to that? With the text. Paul's theology in Romans 5, right? In fact, Romans 5, verse 17, or whatever. You see, Avoid, 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 at all costs, hovering above texts. Get equipped to cut the line and drop down into text, so that you can wrestle with word by word, proposition by proposition, paragraph by paragraph, and work your way through. Um, I'll let you read the rest. The the greatest damage, guys, that you will cause to your own heart and to the lives of others if you handle the word of God is when you hover above text, thinking that you know what texts say. And I'll tell you this. When I read this, the first thought for me was, oh, my goodness, where do I hover? God, where in the scriptures am I hovering? What theological presuppositions do I have? that were derived because I was hovering not because I was working through verse by verse text by text um, if you can find out where those areas are identify significant passages that teach the, what you believe that theological truth is and then drop down into text and wrestle with text of scripture okay? engage the author on the author's own terms engage the author on the author's own terms I'll say it again Engage the author on the author's own terms. Yes, sir?
2: I think, just um, thoroughly, I think the importance of doing that is that that way we don't have to just take, like, your word for it. Right. You know what I'm saying? We don't right. drop in the text and know, and it, yeah, it can have bad effects. Yeah. If you have to just take someone else's word
0: for it. Right. Absolutely. So, what our desire is, guys, um, with this Saturday and the next, and then with a you know a year of H three, it, our desire is to equip you to land into English texts. And if you have a, a real desire to be able to land in Hebrew texts and Greek texts, we we can help you there too. But for the most part, you really need to be able to where you're at right now. You need to be able to handle English texts well, so that you can successfully wrestle with through a good translation. Word by word, proposition by proposition, paragraph by paragraph, etc. Okay? Because then you're engaging the biblical author on his own terms. Okay? And then you can know what God is revealing concerning himself because that's how he revealed himself through an author who was writing on his own terms, uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Right, And then you can properly feed your heart and you can feed God's sheep too. And I'll throw this in, being somebody who's very interested in preaching. Let me ask you a question. Which kind of preaching, which style of preaching best accomplishes a taking the opera on his own terms and not hovering, but actually landing in text and wrestling proposition by proposition, word by word? It's what is called, I think, in my opinion, expository preaching. The word exposit, there's a key word in there. It's called expose. You're exposing words and word by word and and phrase by phrase, proposition by proposition, what's going on there. Um, You're not trying to hover. You're not... Look, sermons, you can tell who a hoverer is when he says, open your Bibles to blah, 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 blah. And you open your Bible, he reads a verse, and then for the rest of the sermon, he hovers. Mm -hmm. Never engaging the text. But he's got lots of thoughts and lots of ideas, but he's just hovering. And lots of people even call that expository preaching. That is not expository preaching. Expository preaching has a very short leash. It's tied to your ankle, and it's about an inch long, and it's tied to the next word in the text. And it keeps you there. And you know what? I don't want to hover because I'll say something wrong. I'll say something that's not true. I know my heart. I'll be influenced to say things that I'll be governed by stuff that I shouldn't be governed by. I want to be governed by what the text says. It's a safeguard to me to know that tomorrow I just have to say what 17 to 19 says or 20 to 22 says or or whatever it is you know, that we're in. I want to be held in and fenced in by what the texts say. I need that. That's why I love expository preaching. That's one of the reasons why I love it. So. has hey, got Yo.
2: Um, just another observation for me that uh, it's easy for preachers to hover when they teach topically instead of just working their way through the text because then it becomes really easy to, uh, to use your analogy to kind of be up here with these handles and then to drop down into the text wherever you feel like that supports whatever thing it is that you want to grab onto and make that point mm-hmm. instead of taking scripture in context working your way through you know, you know, taking an example of the book of Ephesians Paul's making a series of arguments in the book of Ephesians that fit together in a logical way, and if you're just dropping into the text and saying, oh, marriage, or predestination, or whatever, you're not forced to deal with all of that in one big flow.
0: And why was Ephesians written? To, To develop the line of argument and the point that Paul was doing in the letter... No, it would drive you crazy if you wrote a long love letter to your wife because you were gone for her for, for three months. And some joker took your letter and picked out his favorite words and made him a hobby horse and uh, crafted his own communication of what he thought y- you meant. That's not why you wrote. Now That's not to say that you can't deal topically with things. But if you're going to deal topically with things, you need to be really careful how you do it. Right? And this is where I think um, it's really good for guys like Piper um, and men like him who have been wrestling with expository <clears throat> preaching every Sunday for years, decades. They've been working through texts of Scripture. And then when they get into this season of life towards the end. I want that guy to teach me topically. <laughs> Give me give me something on what you've seen in regards to um, justification. Give me something in terms of, of God's immutability. On missions. Admissions. Tell me what the Bible says about missions. Because I know that when that guy reaches down in and he grabs a term or a, a phrase or a concept in a book and he pulls it up, I know that he's probably wrestled with that. And, and, and his... Understanding and application and use of that uh, word is, is probably going to be more credible than somebody else's. Probably mine, I know. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, there's a time and a place for topical preaching. Um, it's interesting to see, though, that the church has pretty much, for the most part, only done topical preaching or opts for a verse-by-verse thing that ends up being only topical. Okay. You
1: know, when they hover, isn't is another popular term they use is application. They try to say, well,
0: you know, i just more
2: to an application than
0: I am. Right. And right. hover. Right. Yeah. This, this just needs to touch your life, and God's Word is, yeah. you know. And, and, and what does that assume? That that immediately, um, huge conclusions are, are drawn from that, wrong conclusions are drawn from that. That if you actually work through text, you won't be application. Now, is it possible to work through text and, and not apply? <coughs> Absolutely. Um, but just because you're doing topical preaching doesn't mean you're applying scripture. In fact, you might be misapplying scripture. There's no guarantees on whatever you're going to do. You have to make sure that you are just handling scripture rightly, no matter what, right? All right, enough said. Let's, let's jump into the, 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 the pack that you have. Now, you have the first nine pages of this, which has actually 60 pages or so, right? Um, this is a little... Um, I wanted to just give the background on this. This how to study the Bible is what we are using to teach our hermeneutics here at um, our hermeneutics course at, at Grace Bible Church and in our in, in the Institute. Um, Josh Kelso, who is in the Institute, um, he just did hermeneutics last semester. He worked through this notebook... Uh, this notebook is, is made available to all the guys who are in H3. There are assignments in it that help you wrestle with the English text. I want to give you the background on, on the guy. It was written by um, Dr. Joel James. Um, Joel is a guy I went to college with. Um, when he and I were at the University of Nebraska, living in Cather dorm, um, I didn't look like I look now. I was a brand new believer. And... He was a real clean cut kid from South Dakota. And we met walking down the stairwell. And we walked, I was in front of him, and we walked clear across campus. And I kept, as I was walking, I'm like, this guy keeps going where I'm going. That's weird. And and, uh, he was kind of looking down, and he was thinking the same thing. I keep going where this guy's going. And and we walked into the same building. And that was kind of weird. And we walked down the same hall. We went up the same stairs, and when we got to the same room for the meeting that we were going to, we kind of laughed because we were both going to FCA. And he's told me later, because we became really good friends, he said, I was, I was praying that God might give me an opportunity to witness to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: and um, I was just praying that God would keep me safe from the weirdo following me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, Joel... Um, we went to seminary together at Master Seminary and Joel is now a, um, a pastor in South Africa and I have the greatest respect for him he um, labors in a church where most of the men that have the highest education they have is an 8th grade education um, they will never have the capacity to learn Greek and Hebrew most likely in their setting and so what he has done to impact them of his church and, and to equip them the best is he has thought how can I help my men handle the English text of scripture the best that they can and he actually went through the um, the um, doctor of ministry and expository preaching and he graduated a year before I did um, recently and this was his d project, his doctoral project was to put in written form and to be able to preach through a, 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 you know, a series on how to help people do right hermeneutics and, um, and really rightly understand the Word of God. And he made this available. He is a, he is a very cogent writer. He's clear. He um, just has a heart for people understanding the Word of God in English. And it is a tremendous tool. And we could have never come up with anything like this. Um, It's the best that I've seen. And I've used different books for interpretation to teach hermeneutics. And I I, I love this. This is great. And what we're going to look at today and and next time are the first nine pages. So um, let's start on page three. And let's actually turn to Nehemiah chapter eight as we talk about the presuppositions. Nehemiah eight. Okay. And again, if you guys have any questions um, as we go through or comments, please raise your hand, ask. This whole idea of helping people understand God's written revelation has been going on for a long time. In Nehemiah's day, it was going on. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 7. You have a list of all of the priests and scribes with Ezra. <coughs> in verse 7, and what they were doing was this. They, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. What did that look like, that explaining? it Well, they read from the book. And the book is the law of God, the Mosaic law, the Pentateuch. That's what they were reading. Now watch this. They were translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. They explained that word in verse seven means to instruct. it means just to cause somebody to understand. And the way that they did that is they read the word. They called that, they called the, those words out. they proclaimed those words. and, and translating to give the sense is, they were making it clear. Translation is probably not the best word to use for that in, in verse eight, but um, they were making it clear. They were trying to make those words distinct. And separate, so that as you kind of break it apart and see it in its pieces, you go, "Oh, I get that. I get that piece, and I get that piece." And so now, when you put them back together, the the togetherness makes sense. I understand now. Thank you. That's what they were doing with the people, and that's what we're after. However, there are some presuppositions that we need to have that lie (coughs) underneath, and um, this is these are the presuppositions that we have as we. Uh, look at the Word of God. Number one, the Bible is God's written revelation to man, and thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, inspired equally in all parts, Word of God. The word plenary also just means complete in all respects, unlimited, full. It's um, the written revelation to man. Thus, the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit, they constitute the full, the complete in all respects unlimited or full, inspired equally in all parts, word of God um, you can look at those passages on your own, 1 Corinthians 2 is on the, the need and the role of the Holy Spirit in understanding who God is and his, what his word is Second Peter 1 talks about no man ever wrote uh, you know, from his own will only who wrote scripture Uh, who wrote prophetic words, but men wrote it, and they were carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that in a moment um, in another one of these. Um, So the Bible is God's written revelation. Um, Number two, the word of God is an objective, propositional revelation. I love that. Verbally inspired in every word. Absolutely inerrant in the original documents infallible and God-breathed. It is an objective propositional revelation. That means that it is not first and foremost like your Blu-ray instruction manual. Because when you want to know how to operate your Blu-ray you don't start on page one and read through to the last page. You Turned, you look at the glossary or you look at the table of contents and you find where you think that and then you go to a page and you read it. It's not an encyclopedia. Remember that quote that we had about the encyclopedia and that we don't handle the word like an encyclopedia? An encyclopedia, you, you, you specifically look for one place to go and that article doesn't depend on the article in front of it to make sense or the one that follows It's not dependent on it. That's a certain kind of a writing that mm-hmm. is meant to do a certain kind of thing. Um, scripture is, is written revelation objective revelation propositional revelation um, we teach it says there in, in number two we teach the literal grammatical historic, historical interpretation of scripture um, which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days and um, and and the grammatical historical interpretation is further defined and explained on page five, okay? Um, And we're going to go through that together next time in in full. Number three, the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Let's just talk about a couple words here. Infallible means incapable of erring, okay? incapable of erring, rule of faith. It's the rule of what we believe. We determine uh, what it is that we should believe in based on these words. And the rule of practice. We, we determine how we should live from these words. We don't just come up with the stuff someplace else. We want these words to determine what we should believe, and we want these words to determine how we should live. Um, let's, go to, let's remind ourselves of Hebrews 4.12. Turn there with me. Um, I think this is a great reminder for us of, of, of why we turn to the word of God there's a propositional truth here about God's word from which significant things flow through Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That was one of our first build lessons we did, remember? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And God loves to use his word to probe into our hearts and he has given to you his word so that you might see what he already sees. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Um, It is the only rule for exposing uh, measurements, guide, um, standard, like a, a ruler is a standard. It's the only standard by which you should measure what you believe. It's the only standard by which you should measure what you practice. Okay, You come back to this, to the word of God. Um, go to Second uh, Peter chapter one. Look at that passage now. Second Peter one. Very interesting words here. Let, let, let me give you the context. We're back in verse sixteen. We did not follow, Peter says, cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't stuff we made up. And he says, we were actually eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, when did Peter see his majesty? Well, he tells us. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father. That's when I saw it. Well, when was that? Well, it was such an utterance was made um, as this. To him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, when was that? Well, it was when we ourselves heard that utterance made from heaven. Well, when? Where? When we were with him on the holy mountain. What is he talking about? It's the Mount of transfiguration. Peter says, I was there. I saw it. (laughs) I'm not making stuff up. I saw it. And so you might think that Peter would rest there. Stop, period. Verse 18, the chapter could have ended right there, you might have thought. But guess what he says. Look what he says next. So we have the prophetic word, more sure. My testimony is sure. I'm not making stuff up. I saw it with my own eyes. My testimony is credible. But you know what? That's not the surest thing there is. What's the surest thing we have? The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. You know, to pay attention to it like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one, one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Here's what he's saying. I had an amazing experience. I saw stuff with my own eyes. And you should listen to me. You know what? Let me give you a better reason to listen to me. The prophetic word is more sure. What God inspired and carried along through the men who prophetically wrote the New Testament, that's more sure than what I saw. I'm not even resting on my own testimony of what the gospel is. I'm resting on what God has written Through the prophets. You say, well, how do you know that's what he's thinking? Go to chapter 3, verse 14. Now, I actually back up. Is it in this one? Yeah, look at chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I'm writing you. I am an apostle. Peter knows what's going on here. He knows what he's writing. He knows what he's calling his people to. Now look over at chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul... According to the wisdom given him, he wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruct- destruction. What is, what is Peter doing with Paul's writings? He's putting them on par with what? The rest of the scriptures. Does Peter know what God's doing through Paul's writings? Yes. Does he know what he's doing through his own writings? I think he does in chapter 3, verse 2. Peter is saying, look, I saw stuff. That's what makes me an apostle. I was with him. I saw him in his glory. I'm not resting in what I saw, and neither should you. Rest in the prophetic word that was made more sure. Your apostles wrote to you. There is no other, if you go back to the presupposition." There's no other rule for faith and practice than this one. Yeah. Please.
2: Verse nine, when I read that.
0: In chapter where? Right. Okay. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And your question is,
1: fill well, it out for me. You're Right, he said that
2: you know he's seen all these things happen, and all this is coming to fruition. Um, and then it says in regard, the, and I'm looking at verse 15, the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him. So I'm looking at this as as you know, the Lord is sovereign in all things and then I go back to verse 9 and it looks like the Lord is waiting on me to
0: do something mm-hmm. to bring you know salvation to people who are in <clears> the <throat> yeah no I, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case um, I, I think that he's presenting that from the, from, from the Lord's side the Lord is not slow about his promise he's not stalling he's not unintentional about his waiting um, he has a promise. It will come to fulfillment. It will come to pass. And he's not slow about it, as some would count slowness. But God is patient toward you. That's different than saying God is waiting, you know, putting... That's not saying God is putting the weight on you or on me to go do things. Do we have obligation in the gospel to go do that? Absolutely. Who's the you? Pardon? Who's the you? <laughs> that say Yeah. Well, that's a good question. We would need to back up and look in our context. Wouldn't yeah. we? If you look at, uh, if you look at this, uh, this um, second Peter, which is two,
1: mm-hmm. so grace and peace can apply to you in the Lord. The Lord the His divine
0: uh, power, He's given us all things that to the divine and through the knowledge of for us, we show. But even in verse one, to say that, for example, verse one said, "To those who have obtained my like, precious face by the righteousness of our God and the Lord our Savior Jesus Christ," I think this was to those all who obtain. So that would be for for for, for everybody. Well, right. we're getting we're getting ourselves a little off track here. But let's, let's, let me let me show you just a couple things here, and then we'll we'll answer this. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, I am writing to you that you should remember the words spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. Uh, that is assuming everything that Paul has said about the you that he has written to. Um like back in chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, together, um, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, etc. Now, applying all diligence, be this, be this, if these qualities are yours, and whatnot, right? Now, go back to chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Following after... Your own lusts? No, no, no. Their. Change of pronouns. He's talking about a different group of people now. Their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? This is what they say. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. For when, who maintains this? They maintain this. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water verse seven um, but his word the present, uh, but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of who ungodly men that's the they the mockers okay verse eight contrast contrast but do not let this one fact escape whose notice? Your notice. Now I'm back talking to you people. I'm talking about you. <clears throat> With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient toward who? You, the ones I'm writing to. In fact, here's what's going to be the ultimate outcome of his patience. God doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. You, the ones that God, I think, has intended to save. I think that's a, a, a safe interpretation that's bound off of what's going on in the text there. And you can do this with all of the all passages. Just back up. Um, we got really off track here.
1: here's a principle let
0: me give you a principle in in dealing with the all passages Uh, and what I mean by all passages (laughs) no it's great, this happens all the time Um, this is what's great about um, these kinds of um, arguments when when you come to an all passage where it appears to say on the surface in a verse that all are being saved And that his desire is for all to be saved. Um, I've noticed this in my own experience. Number one, whenever I'm in a conversation or a debate, it it becomes instantly emotional. Either me or them or both. Okay? Instantly emotional. Just like, and I don't mean I could cry. I mean, like, you know, you're worked up and your affections are really stirred. I notice this about myself. When my affections are stirred, I need to take a big, deep breath and I need to slow down. Okay? So first thing, recognize that it's probably going to be, um, there's going to be some affections stirred, okay? Now, back up then, and, and here's a, the second thing. It's, so it's a very affection-stirring conversation. Secondly, it's usually on one verse, okay? If your affections are stirred and you're looking at one verse, I say it's probably good to, to um, be very cautious about an interpretation that's going to flow out of a very emotional setting on one verse, Let's be smarter than that. Back up and say, let's go to verses before it. And so back up a paragraph or two and look for is who is the all? Who are the you? Who are the they? Is there a switching back and forth in the writer's mind so that we know? And let that cool the affections and bring some... Tempering to the conversation, and I think you'll find um, the passages of Scripture where, it, where where you're looking at this kind of all or limited type of thing going on. Come on in. When you're looking at that, I think you're going to find that there's a, a wonderful consistency um, of what's going on. So now I'm going to period at the end of that one. And let us get back into this, okay? And then we'll take a little break here. Is that alright? We can talk some more about that during the break if you want. Number four, on um, the presuppositions. God's spoken is written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that, through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man. Without error, in the whole, it's without error. And in the part, it's without error. That means uh, it doesn't matter if you're looking at individual words or phrases or propositions or you're looking at the whole book or the whole book, book, book of books of all the books. Um, it's, it's without error. Um, and we just looked at that in Second Peter 1, right? Isn't that what Peter said? Men were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's dual authorship. Um, When you want to talk about ultimate authorship, how many authors are there? There's one. But God, it pleased him to take his ultimate authoring and push it through a human, frail author who wrote. And that human, frail author, his personalities come out. His experiences come out. his Everything he is come out. But what superintends and overrides all of that is God, so that it's, there's no faltering. Even though He's a frail, fallen man, God's authorship controls His small a authorship. Okay. And number five, while there are maybe several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one interpretation. The meaning of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Um, and what is meant there is just that, look, anytime you study the Word of God, guys, you are needy. And you need the Holy Spirit. I oftentimes, before I preach and when we pray, you notice know, we pray, Um, and I started doing that from the earliest days here when I came, Um, I sadly say I didn't always pray before I preached Um, because I felt like the prayers before kind of covered, you know, and maybe they did, maybe they do, but I can tell you this, that when I have God's word open and if I have to teach, I I feel very weak, very needy, very dependent, and so that's why oftentimes I'll pray and ask for the fullness of God's spirit upon me, and upon you. Because for you... Look, you should not assume that just because you're there and you have two ears and you're awake that you get it. And just because I'm talking doesn't mean I'm contributing anything to the conversation, right? We need the Holy Spirit and that's what we need. Um, so, there's one interpretation. When you write a letter to your the one you love, okay... You didn't mean four different things. You meant one thing. Applications that might arise from that one thing you meant—oh, there might be multiple applications of it—but there was one thing you meant, and you don't want anybody coming back and messing with what you meant. It's so funny the day we live in. Here's what postmodernism is: there is no objective meaning in anything out there until I assign meaning to it. So I don't care what you wrote. Here's what it means to me. I'll tell you what. You can say that all you want, but then you get a postmodern guy hanging over a cliff, dangling. And he's hanging by one more finger, and he says, "Please, give me a hand." And you go, "That's what it meant to me." He falls. Sorry. He's going to be a little upset, is he not? Not for long. (laughs) He'll get over it. See, I mean, look, it's so funny. Everybody wants to be this way with everybody else's words, but don't mess with my words. Um, Well, look, here's what I say to people who want to argue about how you really can't know the meaning of Scripture. I'm like, well, I can know the meaning of your words. In fact, you're counting on me, knowing the meaning of your words in this conversation. So can we not just extend the same courtesy to God? Or is there something else going on in you that you don't want to extend that courtesy to God? Oh, that's interesting. Now we're getting at the heart of the matter, aren't we? Okay. Let's take a... Did I finish reading it? I didn't. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent and I would say of the author, and true meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application, proper is an important word there, is binding on all generations. Get this. There was actually a period of time in which people applied Mosaic Law to their lives in ways that we do not now apply Mosaic Law to our lives. Is that true? Proper application. See, it was proper for them to apply all of Mosaic Law to their lives as it was. But a time came when the veil was torn from top to bottom and a new body was formed by the pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost, in which application of Mosaic Law is no law, now, for that generation, no longer exactly what it was for a generation before. And it's not exactly for us. So it's the proper application that's binding on all generations. Yeah, We need to still have right kinds of thinking and application that derives from Mosaic Law, but as we push forward in Scripture, or for you, much right, Pushes forward through Scripture towards Christ. So that any application that we look at as we're in Mosaic Law, we we don't think about it without going through Christ and what Christ has said. And we apply from Christ. Okay? So, proper application binding on all generations. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment on us. Never do we stand in judgment of it. Let's take a, a five minute break or so. Let's come back and we'll dig a little bit more. Okay, guys? We're going to move on to um, section one. What I'd like to do, if we can, this morning, is at least give our get ourselves from page four over to page five to the 12 principles of interpretation or the 12 rules of hermeneutics. It's not that there's only 12. There's probably 112 things to keep in mind. But these are the 12 that um, Dr. James grabbed and, and hung on to that are... are are probably at the top of the list to be in mind of, mindful of. Let's now talk about two classical ways of approaching texts. Um, uh, especially the biblical text. Through the centuries of Christianity, Bible students have practiced many wrong methods of interpreting scripture, and here are the two common ones that you'll want to avoid. The first is the allegorical method and if you drop down a little bit more you'll see the one that we live in today. The what it means to me method, which in history past was called neo-orthodoxy, a new orthodoxy um, that came on the scene uh, because people felt that they were liberal theologians felt <coughs> that there was uh, the, the the literal approach to scripture was not the best. Um, times are a changing, and so we need to approach the word of God a little differently. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about the allegorical method. An allegory is a story in which the people and events of the story have hidden or symbolic meanings. Okay? Now, it's not written here, but you might want to write down um, something like this. A key, uh, not here in Spanish, a and then key, (laughs) is outside the text. A key is somewhere outside of the text. The key to understanding what's going on in that story is not in the story, it's outside the story. A key outside the text is needed in order to understand the story. That's what an allegory is. Okay? So those who interpret the Bible allegorically, they bypass the clear historical meaning of the text And they make imaginative associations between their Christian experience and persons or events in the text. Let me give you uh, a couple of examples from the early church fathers. In the Old Testament, at Jericho, when the spies told Rahab, the only way that we will save you from the destruction of God, the wrath of God that is coming on Jericho, is if you will hang outside your window a red cord. Whatever it was. We don't really know exactly what it was. Something red. Allegorical interpretation in the early church fathers. The red is the blood of Christ. And thus, Rahab, the harlot, the sinner, is saved from the wrath of God through the blood of Christ. Now, as you read that passage in Joshua, what in the story tells you that that's what that means? Nothing. The clear meaning in Joshua is bypassed and you are now dependent upon the one telling you that's what it is on his key that he holds. And he has determined what the red means. The red scarf, cord, whatever it was. And he has now come up with a very interesting um, fanciful, theologically true statement. Sinners are saved by the blood of Christ. That is not what that passage is trying to communicate. That is allegorical, a story. And and, and what you have walked away with from that passage is a greater sense of that man's imagination than you have what that text actually says. Right? Now, if you want to talk about the blood of Christ saving sinners, do it. But not from that passage that way. Put that passage in its trajectory along with what all of the other texts are aiming at. When the blood of that one does come and save sinners,
1: right? Can't both be true at the same time? I come from a, a church background that's more into that, and they would certainly never teach that's the point of the passage in Joshua. <laughs> but they'd look at that and they'd say, "Look, even in this, we can see a picture where red right here, right?" Why couldn't God have done that? that, That's not Mm -hmm. what he's trying to teach in the story of Rahab. But isn't it interesting? Or or the the colors and the the coverings over the tabernacle have pictures that speak. There's all kinds of Mm -hmm. things that seem like it could be a true second layer of meaning that God could have written in.
0: Who determines that? And what warrants that in the text? What in the text warrants you to say that?
1: that's the rest of, right, it's okay. It's comparing with the rest of Scripture.
0: Yeah, but it's, does all of the rest of Scripture then override what that author said at that point?
1: Not override, but inform.
0: Well, right? sure, absolutely. But if that author first must be able to speak on his own terms, in his own setting, in his own way, and then you put together the rest. And if you put together the rest and it completely overshadows the story of what God was doing in terms of, of at that moment, at that place, at that point in, in redemptive history, then I want to know what in the text warrants you to do that. See, this is it's a great question, Daniel. And the point is to come always back to the text and say, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to dig my feet down in for a little bit, not forever, I'm not going to live in Joshua. Okay? But I'm going to dig my feet down and I'm going to let him say everything he intended to say. Because what carries the most authority at that point is Joshua through the Spirit of God. And I might see... now. Here's what I, here's what I think in, in what you're talking about uh, where, where, the, where there's an effort made to do this. What do we see though? We see some theological conclusions. God is gracious to some rebels Mm. and he saves some doesn't he that is a great correct interpretation and application to make from that text pull that up out of its narrative that it sits in Um, let me do it, I always go left right in my own mind, okay here's the Old Testament and here it sits right here draw that theological conclusion up here now you and I, at the end of the day, as Christians, know that God wrote a whole lot more, and we even saw before this that God was like this. Now, why don't we? Why do everybody want to run that way only and not run back and say, you know, God's been like this since Genesis three? There were two people who should have been slain in the garden, and yet an animal was slain, so coverings could be put on it. Okay, so now draw your theological application and then run through forward the text and get to, to Christ. But I wouldn't make an issue out of a red cord as blood. I mean, what in the text tells me that that's what I should think? Nothing. What tells me I should think that is, well, I guess me. And how do I know that's what God intended in the text if he didn't say? I don't know. So what I'm more likely to do is draw a theological trajectory derived from text that God is a very merciful God towards rebels, and He saves some. I'm very comfortable doing that, putting all the rest of Scripture together. It's how you do it that is everything. Um, if you, if you, one way to to bring out the theological is by the allegory. The the, the early church fathers, anytime they see wood anywhere, it becomes the cross. The ark. The ark isn't really about the ark. The ark is about the cross. Well, yes and no. The ark was about the ark. The ark was about Noah. Seven people being saved, eight being saved. Um. And it, had, it functions at a place in a storyline that's being developed. And that's what gets skipped over. To, to draw attention to the very important theological. And, and what I'm trying to, what we're trying to say <coughs> is, look, let's get there. Well, let's get there the right way with each text. And let each text speak in its neighborhood on its own authority as it should. And then let's piece all of the neighborhoods together. And let's look for a trajectory of Scripture that points us to something that's true. But that just because there's a, a theological similarity and trajectory that's true, that doesn't mean that every text pulls Jesus back into each text and say, well, somehow he's there. And the way I'm going to get him there is by red. Or the way I'm going to get Jesus there is by wood. Or the way that I, You know what I mean? Instead, that's not the way to bring out to the greatness of Jesus Christ in Revelation, the way to do it is teach the story, teach it in its setting, teach it where, why was it important for Israel to trust God and to march around Jericho? Does that count for something? I think it does. And if you put that in the shadows of Christ's blood, well then you're missing something really important. And you're not losing a single thing if you tell that story in its setting, at its time, in its place, in the fullness of what it means for Jericho to be marched around, crumbled, but one gets saved. You will, if you camp there and you tell that story as it was intended to tell, you're not limiting yourself to what you're going to say next about Jesus. You're only illustrating your ground. You're only making your launch pad greater and bigger to be able to theologically say, and how much more so? At the cross. Okay, How you do that is everything. I am all about wanting to see the, the theological, um, what they call the scarlet line of redemption in the text. There is a scarlet line, so to speak, of redemption. Um, scarlet red, the color of blood, <clears throat> flowing from the very beginning pages forward. But here's the danger, and there's a theological camp today that reads all of those Old Testament texts. We're going to get to this next time. They push Jesus backwards into everything. The Bible wasn't written backwards. The Bible was written forwards. So, um, the net effect in many ways is the same, but you have to be really careful. When you go back and start at the beginning, teach it as it was. But you know there's more to the rest of the story, don't you? And you want to get there, and you should get there as a Christian. Christ is the one that Moses wrote about Christ is what Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were pointing to. How are you going to bring out Christ? <coughs> How you do that is everything. And I don't think it's the best way to do it by looking for little indicators in the text that allow you to make something red be blood. Because I should do that only when the text indicates to me that I should do that. Otherwise, I don't know what authoritatively is guiding me to do that. It's something outside of the text. Does this make sense? So emphasize the things theologically, um, but don't let yourself in a text do things that maybe the text uh, isn't meant to tell in that story there. Somebody on a hand over here? John.
2: Um, how do we deal with passages in the Old Testament that clearly are, in a sense, allegorical, like the whole sacrificial system under Moses, which, I mean, maybe allegorical, maybe I'm not using the right word for that, but I mean, the author of Hebrews, when you look at Jesus' celebration of Passover, I mean, this stuff is pointing at yeah. Jesus.
0: Yeah, allegory is not the right word to use. Okay. Because it it wasn't just a story that was made up. In terms of, let's look back here again, a story in which the people and events of the story have hidden or symbolic meanings. Meaning hidden in the sense that you can't know. Somebody there has to because you can't know. Somebody has to come and give you a key outside of it to tell you what it is. Listen, um, when 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 Moses was told by God to Crafted to, to make a tent. Um, what did that mean? Well, let me tell you what it meant. <clears throat> Man, they was supposed to make a tent. Yeah, that's what it means you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make a tent. And then you know what? That story meant something for Israel. It meant something really important. I'll tell you what it meant. It meant, as I read through this with my kids this last month or two, oh my goodness, God was shaking the mountain called Sinai. They were so scared. They're like, oh, Moses, you go talk to them, not us. And God said, they're wise. He's shaking the mountain with his presence. And he says, make a tent? Make a tent? Because I'm going to take what I am and what I'm doing to this mountain, I'm going to put it in a tent. A tent? What? Yeah, and you know what? I want you to put the tent in the middle of the camp. The camp's going, we want to get away from the mountain. And you're going to come in and be in a tent? You're going to come and confine your greatness and your massiveness and your power? You're going to put it there in the middle? You've got to be kidding me. And God saying, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And he comes and he... Listen, that doesn't hurt you to develop that story. It's true. And that's what it meant for them. That's what it meant for them. And it meant everything to them. And then he says to them, you know what, when you come to me, um, I want to accept you. So when you bring a bull from the herd, lay your hands on it, slit its throat, sprinkle the blood here and there, and burn it, and some of the priests get to to keep some of it sometimes and burn the rest outside the camp, and, and, and you know what, and you will be forgiven. That meant everything to them. This God... Who did what they what he did in the Exodus, and then comes to the mountain, and then he says, I'm gonna dwell, I'm gonna dwell in your midst. Look, that means something. That's not a and, and you know what? For them, God was saving through their faith. God was saving it through Abraham's faith before that. It meant something. There was salvation in that for them. Was that the final point of the story? No, you just keep going and you keep going, and all of a sudden you open to John chapter one and it says, And we saw his glory. And he dwelt among
1: yeah.
0: But the word dwelt means tabernacle. Now, are pieces being fit in that weren't back there? Uh-huh. That doesn't mean that's an allegory. Stories being built upon stories, upon stories, upon stories, and you see it in its context. And to come back here to this part of the book, the Old Testament, and to want to, with a heart that wants to get to that, To say, and the showbread is this. And the color of the tent is this. And the lampstand means this. And that is one way, that is one way to try to bring out Christ. But the question I'm going to ask you, that I'm going to ask myself, is what in the text warrants me to make that conclusion? And what if somebody else says, hmm, that's not what that color means. Well, who's gonna? Whose authority do we go by? How do we know? I don't think that's how you have to get Jesus and the greatness of his sacrifice back into those stories. Just tell the story. Create some anticipation. Make them feel what it was like to have those rocks get stuck in their sandals and have to live with that and long for a sacrifice that would last longer than 30 seconds until they sinned again. and Make them feel those things and and just unfold it as it goes. That's the way God wrote it. Right? Matt?
1: Now, uh, there was a shepherds conference Session about the roots of the allegorical method okay. and how it started. And, and I, I just, I'm not sure about this because like, they only said it in session, so I can't verify. It. But how it started with Greek philosophers and yeah. how that influenced um, the early church fathers. And it makes me think, when, I, when I look at this, it makes me think how both of these methods are really just the culture bleeding in
0: to to the church. And how even like it, it makes me just fearful. Like if I even if I have the right approach to scripture but I constantly have my mind in the culture and my mind is thinking like the culture that can just bleed in very easily so it just makes me you know, cautious of, yeah. that's a great example um, there are things um, <coughs> there are things about our culture today that are very helpful when it comes to interpretation um, God is always this way he gives a very mixed <coughs> caution and encouragement from what's in our culture. Let me give you an example. Our culture right now is, is seeping in postmodernism in some places. It, it's actually in Europe, it's, it's fading out. It's interesting, but here it's very much in, still in vogue. And, and post-moderns, postmodernism's way of interpreting is uh, reader response, which is what we're going to talk about here, what it means to me. It doesn't really matter what you read or what you wrote. Uh, what matters is what it means to me. Now, the, what 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 is in that? The nugget that is in that, that is important for us to not lose and to not poo-poo, is, um, you know what? Um, readers are a part of the process. Stuff is written so that readers understand, and we need to pay attention that the reader is 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 a part. It has his right place in the whole thing. I don't want to assign him a role that he doesn't that he shouldn't have. But that doesn't mean he doesn't get any role. And so there's good things about that. Um, another good thing about postmodernism that we should learn from, that we should do better than postmodernity, is humility. There's this thing now today, especially in, in the branches of the church that have really bitten into uh, postmodernism, where they want to say, look, it's, it's humble to not be sure. <laughs> Uncertainty equals Humility. You know what we should do when we hear that? We should say, oh, you know what? Let me show you what real humility is. Um, Humility does not equal uncertainty. Humility. When I'm uncertain and I admit it, that's humble. But let me show you what real humility is. I can hold with conviction to a truth in a text. And I can do it humbly so. Let me inform you of what true humility is. See, you don't want to throw away... If if postmodernity is marked by this humility that's under uncertainty... We don't run away from that, and we we don't want to run from humility. let's show what real humility is, biblical humility. Um, So there are good things in the culture that we can learn from that go on around. Um, Those things need to be sanctified and clarified under what true humility is and, and stuff like that. The other thing that's really bad, that we have to be really cautious of today, is this whole idea that, well, look, you know, you really can't know what any author really meant as soon as he wrote it down, its meaning was really, in a sense, lost. And they actually believe this stuff. Except when they write out their will, okay? <laughs> but it was lost. It was lost. And and, um, and now, uh, what's, what's really most important is that you and I, as readers of this, we come and we, we dialogue about it. We dialogue. We have a dialogue in the church about this and what you as a reader contribute to what this says and what I as a reader contribute to well wow, that's impressive the experience we had together of contributing our dialogue and our understanding and our experiences that was, that was really what really mattered, not what it actually said but what we experienced and brought together um, that in fact has infected the church so much that any view of communicating the word of God that looks like somebody standing up Opening a text and saying, Thus saith the Lord, is arrogant. One way directional, so thoughtless about the poor readers sitting out there, listeners sitting out there. So now, now, preaching is under attack in that portion of the church in America that now what guys do is they, they, put, they put aside the podium or the pulpit and they pull up a, a, a stool and they sit in front of a bunch of people sitting in couches and they have a conversation. Because a conversation is a two-way thing, see? And so now, what's more important is that I hear what you're saying. Because, I mean, who am I? I I'm just another reader like you, and I don't know really what's being said. And, And look, in the church, is there a place for conversation around Scripture? Absolutely. Does that mean we should throw the pulpit out? No. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that the culture bleeds in and we should be like, patching that up and saying, none of that's getting in. And there are other things at which we should look at and go, you know, we might be able to learn um, and, and be reminded and maybe even admonished a little bit that maybe we've grown arrogant and we need to be humble, but, but not humble the way they're saying humble, humble the way God says to be humble. Um, so, yeah, every culture has its really bad influences, and there are some things that are really good. Modernity, um, back in the first half of the 20th century, what was really good about that? There's objective truth, and everybody believed it. That was good for Christians. That was really good for Christians. Post modernism. We are so done with that. That we are behind that, or that's behind us. We're that's post. Now we're, we're done with modernism. Who knows what truth is? Because as a reader, I don't know. Well, you know that's not entirely bad for us. We have something to say to that. We can step in and say, you know, I'm a reader too. But you know what? Let me help you think about your words. They matter, don't they? It's a good day to be the church. And it's a good day to believe in the inspiration and the infallibility of scripture. That's a good day. Uh, We don't need to be afraid of it. We just don't want to imbibe everything that comes from the culture. Enough sense or said there. Let me um, give you an example here of the allegorical method. One church father interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan by making the following associations. The traveler who was attacked represents a person seeking salvation. The robbers represent Satan. Naturally, the good Samaritan is Christ. The oil and the wine the Samaritan administered to the injured man's wounds picture the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. And the donkey is the gospel. Because it was the vehicle that carried the injured man to the inn, which is the church, where the man recovered. Now, those are theologically true kinds of things. The question is, what in the text warrants you to come to those conclusions? And the point is, nothing. Who can verify this? Look, I'm not trying to make an... The gospel carries sinners to salvation. I agree with that. Um, Jesus brings healing and cares and has compassion for sinners. I got that. I I believe that. Um, The Holy Spirit is very important. But is that the point of the passage? No, in fact, let's read on. Although Jesus taught the parable to answer a very specific question, like, who's my neighbor? Oh, yeah. See, that's what it was about. And never mind the fact that Jesus, a Jew, answering a Pharisee's question, who would have hated Samaritans, says... To him, uh, says to him instead, you know what? <laughs> I do why. <that> <laughs> D- says um, he says to him, uh, you know what? Let me tell you who the neighbor is. Let me let me show you the guy who really understands who his neighbor is. Does he pick a Pharisee? No Pharisee. What about the scribe in the story? No, wasn't a scribe. It was the dreaded Samaritan who really understood who his neighbor was. Oh, what a slap in the face to the Pharisee. A sharp admonishment. That's the point of the passage. Okay? But boy, that'll preach though, won't it? (laughs) The gospel is the
1: donkey.
0: maybe that won't preach. Evaluation of the allegorical method. The allegorical method obscures the true meaning of God's words. Guys, do you get this? The allegorical method obscures the true meaning of God's word by ignoring what the writer actually said. That is huge. Since the plain sense of the text is ignored, there is no means of checking whether an allegorical interpretation is true or not. There's just not. An allegorical interpretation tells you more about the interpreter's imagination than it does about God's word. And the reason you need to be familiar with the allegorical method is because once you come across the church father origin on, that's, the church was suffering under this interpretation of scripture all the time. It's amazing that God even preserved the church underneath that. Uh, the what it means to me, I want to do this one quickly and then we'll, we'll finish. Okay, guys, thank you for being so patient. If we don't do, get this far today, we'll never get this far the next time to the rest but what it means to me or the neo-orthodox uh, method. This method comes in two packages. There's a scholarly one and there's a popular one, meaning um, the common one among the people like that is common to our setting. So he wants to talk about the scholarly one first. The neo-orthodox or the reader response method, you might wanna circle that or underline that because that is another way of understanding that this in, uh, very, very common interpretation. You might come across it if you do any reading on hermeneutics the reader response method of interpreting scripture. It is based on a particular view of the Bible. Modern theologians don't believe the Bible is infallible or inerrant. They don't believe the Bible in itself actually is God's word. It is merely a record of how men in ages past experienced God. Therefore, the Bible is suggestive, but not authoritative in our day. Your experience of God might actually be different than Moses or Paul's or Peter's. For the neo-Orthodox theologian, the Bible isn't God's word, but watch this. It becomes the word of God when you have a significant experience while reading it. Because this isn't a joke. This is what they actually believe, that it has no authority until when I come to it and I read it, I, I sense something, I feel something. Now, tell me this. What matters to them most? The words on the page or them? This means nothing until this happens or kicks in. Okay? So, what they're what they're putting the emphasis on is the interpreter, not the original words or the author, okay? Truth is not the concern. That is different for every person, right? We're relativistic. The issue is how the words strike you as you read them. Well, it just doesn't strike me that way, so I don't agree with you. If a, if a judge said that to them about their will, or not their will, but some other document in a lawsuit, and the judge said, well, I know that's what you wrote and intended, but that doesn't strike me that way. Oh, my goodness, would he be making a fuss? See, you can't even be consistent with this. What the original author wrote is merely a tool in their mind that assists you in shaping your own concept of God and how to please Him. This view of God's word is very popular in today's postmodern, everyone is right, no one is wrong, academic atmosphere. The reader's response determines the meaning, not the words themselves. Do words have a meaning outside of you, whether you, before you even come to it? Yes. They do. They have a meaning. You don't have to wait for them to gain meaning until somebody reads it. Okay. This uh, method of interpretation is also widespread on the popular level, and this is where we live. It's reflected in the motto: "What this verse means to me." You've been in Bible study where, together with Christians, where that is said. In other words, God's intent is not the concern. His intent in the text may or may not be. Now, I don't think every Christian. Knowingly, intentionally says, well, what it means to me is, I think oftentimes they think, well, the way that I would apply this is, and that's a whole different question than what it means to me. I don't think they intend to, but I think we slip into this very easily. It's kind of the default way of thinking about writings. The historical theological context is irrelevant in this popular method. Only how it immediately and intuitively strikes the reader is what matters. In such circles, You don't actually have to diligently study. Do you get that? You don't have to diligently study. Because it's not as important what was actually written there. All I have to do is just open it and get a sense of something that I read. And that's what matters. Okay? So it's frowned upon. It's even vilified. Yeah, to actually stand up and to say, yeah, you know, I actually studied 25, 30 hours this week on this passage. And now I want to preach to you. How thoughtless of me, the reader, the hero, and others. I mean, that's so arrogant. I mean, because how can anybody really know the truth of that, what the author said? The reader's intuitive, unstudied response determines the meaning, not the words themselves. Evaluation (laughs) of it, top of the page. It's based on an errant view of the Bible. Now, you might find Christians who actually believe the Bible is inerrant who... Follow this, but the true neo orthodox movement or the reader response theory actually comes out of, a, out of a conviction that scripture is not scripture. Secondly, the Bible is divine truth, um, not suggestive, non authoritative human experiences. The Bible is the truth, not our suggestive, non authoritative human experiences. These methods fail to recognize that the intent of the original authors is what determines the meaning of a text. The memo means what the boss wrote, it says it means. Okay, as an illustration. What the Bible meant to the human author as God's spirit moved them to write is what the Bible means. We don't impose our meaning on what God said. We work to discover the meaning he initially and eternally intended. A great example that I've heard a friend of mine use is, and uh, he speaks about his wife, he'll say, uh, use this as an illustration. When I say to my wife, your love to me is like a rose. If I come to his wife and I say, he thinks... He thinks you're like a
2: foreign <laughs> 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 <that hurts> <laughs> makes him bleed in pain
0: <laughs> that's what he thinks about <coughs> did you know that? what's wrong? I my meaning to his words I should have checked well, what did you mean by what you said? See on a common level a regular level I mean, does it, does it, is it common sense? That what I said and what I wrote doesn't, shouldn't we check with what I said and what I wrote before we, you actually conclude what it meant, right? And me with you and vice versa with one with another. Let's extend God the same courtesy. We can find that meaning by reading the Bible according to the normal rules of written communication. What are those rules? How do they apply to the Bible? What is the right way to interpret the Bible? Well, the right way, and I really like this, is carefully and normally. This is how you interpret the Bible, carefully and normally. normally. It's another way, I think, of referring to the grammatical, literal, historical method. Oh. Literal, grammatical, historical method. Just What does that mean? I, I just want to be careful, and I want to read things normally. The normal sense of what the word means is what I'm going to go with first, unless otherwise indicated in the text. I shouldn't read it normal. I am the door. I'm going to first lock myself into the normal meaning of it. It's a door, unless there's something in the text that won't, tells me otherwise. Oh, Jesus is. He doesn't mean it's actually like a door, a literal door, but he means he's something that functions like a door, a gateway, a path, an opening. Okay? And we will jump into that next time. Guys, thank you for um, enduring so much sitting there. This is uh, important stuff. Um, and uh, if you're being exposed to it for the first time, it is probably like a fire hose coming up. Um, next time, the fire hose, we'll turn it right back on again, and we're going to go through the 12 in, uh, principles of interpretation on pages five through nine. Okay? We only have a short moment. What do you guys, for your small groups, want to do? You want to uh, get together and do just a hand you and we finish up a little early. What do you guys wanna do? want to do? I'm going to save it for next time. Mm-hmm. Together. You know, next time, the, the only assignment that you have for next time is to read through the rest of this. Here's what I'd like to do. I essentially, we really won't have us anything a, a assignment necessarily. Let's have, let's save Tom's work for next time. So even if you didn't weren't able to get the assignment done from Tom, let's bring that next time. Is it green? Yeah, it is. Okay, bring that green sheet with you next time, and and we'll do our small groups then. Tom or John, is there anything for your small group that you need to communicate to your guys today?
2: I just have a bunch of them to hand back. Okay, great. Let's make sure we do that.
0: Um, Matt, anything for you? Do you have some homework to hand back to guys? Okay. Um, who else? Eric, do you have anything? Same thing? All right, let's do this. Let me close in prayer, and then before you go, make sure you see your small group leader, and they will uh, make sure they get some homework to Okay? And we can stay around and talk a little bit more if you want. Okay? Okay. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for the, the chance to, to think about these things. And um, Lord, we want to think rightly about your words and um, we want to make sure that we treat your words in an appropriate way that honors you as the author. And Father, maybe something that would be good for us to think about is, is how we want people to treat our words. Are we... Are we rising to that level with yours? Well, we should certainly rise above that level because you are the king <coughs> King of the universe. You are God Almighty. You are the Savior who took on flesh and um, poured out your blood in your Son so that we might um, trust in the sacrifice of sacrifices <coughs> and live under the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And um, what you write to reveal yourself is important and it matters. Father, I pray that you would um, unite our hearts together around a common way of interpreting the Bible. Lord, not everybody agrees on this and we understand that, but this is where we are as a church and pray that you'd help us to humble ourselves in holding that and um, that you would be pleased to bless, Lord, this view of your scriptures. That's what we would want because we want your gospel to be clear to sinners so that they might see your son we want your church to be built up and to be strengthened so that it might be pleasing to you a spotless, cleansed bride living in a very stained world help us, Lord, to live according to your word, to let it search us and know us at the heart level and um, Father, bless our rest of our day as we go forward um, and prepare our hearts to come back tomorrow as the body of Christ to, for a strategic moment during the week, come together to worship you, to be built up in you under your word, in order to scatter right back out into the world to live for you with the gospel. And so, in your Son's name, we pray. Amen. Amen.